In this episode, we will cover, for the first time, a short story by C.S. Lewis. Given that it's a short story and not an essay as we usually cover, you may want to read or listen to this one ahead of time because we're about to spoil the twist ending. So if I were you, I would hit pause on the episode and then go read the short story. It goes by the name of Light or The Man Born Blind. There's two different versions of it. There's a link in the show notes that will take you straight to a YouTube video where you can listen to it. It's only 11 and a half minutes. Come on back here when you're done and enjoy our conversation with Charlie Starr, who has awesome things to share about light or the man born blind. Light is the thing that allows you to see everything else. If you go looking for the thing that allows you to look, you're never going to find it. So for Lewis, if, if you try to look inside yourself, you're not really looking experientially. You're not thinking your thoughts anymore. You're looking at the thoughts that you thought. And Lewis said something like that could ultimately drive you insane. Welcome to Lesser Known Lewis, where two friends and C.S. Lewis fans explore his lesser known works. I'm Sean. And I'm Jordan. Join us for season three on metaphor and myth where Lewis's writings on language, imagination, and storytelling will help us come to see, know, and taste reality more deeply. Hello, listeners. We are thrilled to be back in the recording studio or three different recording studios in the seat talking with one another and just inviting you into another one of C.S. Lewis's lesser known works. Tonight, though, we're reading a short story, which is not an essay. For those of you who are a little bit more uh, literary, this might be a nice change of pace as well. And we have a guest with us. It's not just Jordan and I tonight. So our guest tonight is our first returning guest. If you want to hear him, he's on some earlier episodes where we talk about the screw tape fragment. Uh, and then the other two were, what is myth and why myth matters? Um, so there's links to those in the show notes that Jordan is very helpfully providing for us. Welcome back, Dr. Charlie Starr. Hi, thanks. I'm glad to be here. And Jordan, you're here too. Yeah. Hey, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I am. Uh, I am here as well. And it's also great to be here. Thanks for having us, Sean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I'll claim, I'll claim uh, credit for all this, this podcast. That's right. Good. Yeah. Uh, well, Charlie, last time uh, we forgot to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests. So it's good that you've come back on so that we can really tick this box off. Um, but we always ask our guests, when you recommend a lesser known Lewis work to people, what do you find yourself recommending? Uh, okay, well, I got this question from you earlier, of course, to help me prepare. Uh, and I wrote down my uh, my list of the best. And so probably in the order that I would suggest reading them, it might be something like, uh, first of all, The Weight of Glory. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, Myth Became Fact. Then Transposition. Um, Fernseed and Elephant, which is also published under another name. I think it's... Um, Theology and Biblical Criticism, something like that anyway, um, is Theology Poetry, The Language of Religion. And if you really want to do uh, do something fancy, then try, um, if you want to take a deep dive, we could say, uh, try Lewis's essay, 
blusples and phalansphories. Oh, uh, which has a lot to say on 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 metaphor and the nature of uh, knowledge. Um, otherwise, what people tend not to go to in Lewis is his um, short stories. So certainly recommend the short stories and also uh, his poetry. Uh, not enough people appreciating Lewis's poetry, and a lot of it is very good. Charlie, I'm going to, before we get into today's planned episode, not knowing that you were going to answer as you did, um, we just recorded uh, <laughs> Blue Spells, Blue Spells. I've never been able to say it quite right. Blusples. Blusples and? Philansphories. We just recorded a conversation that Jordan and I had on Blusples and Philanderies. <laughs> and I said it different every single time. Florence, please. Um, and I, I don't want to just like be the jester every time, but I have to be honest, that was the most challenging uh, essay so far that we have read of Lewis's. And, uh, and it was, we, we joked because it's been, we've had actually a number of interview episodes recently where we had some, some experts like yourself who have given us just absolutely um, beautiful insight into some other essays that we could have filled a lot of time with. And here, Jordan and I swimming in white water is what it felt like with that. So um, I, I don't want to derail us too much, but is there a, do you want to give a nutshell pitch for the average reader going into that book as to why should we read this particular essay of C.S. Lewis's? No, I don't. <laughs> Um, if you're if if you are interested in knowledge, in 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 understanding and in thought processes that are not bound up in the limitations of um, post enlightenment modernist limited abstract reason based thinking, that's why you go and you read um, Blusbles. Uh, so you really have to have either a, a very literary bent or a very philosophical theological bent. Uh. Now, reading about the significance of metaphor um, and, and the nature of language in Blusbles uh, might have serious implications on the way we interpret Scripture. Right. Um, so, so that might be a reason to go to it. But it's it's as you say, it's not light reading. Uh, so. Uh, if 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 you're a casual Lewis fan, don't read it. If you're committed to reading everything Lewis ever wrote and truly want to understand his thought processes, um, it's one of the core. It's one of the core texts. Uh, you'll be happy to know that it's not the worst. <laughs> no, there are much more difficult Lewis texts um, to read than Blusbles. Well, I look forward to continuing to pour the pitcher of C.S. Lewis's thought life into the thimble of my own <laughs> and catching what I can. So just to use a, a pupil metaphor there for you. And if you read if you read Blessables, then you will uh, you'll you'll understand that reference or just listen to the lesser known Lewis episode on the same topic. Mm -hmm. Jordan, what are we talking about today? Well, we are talking about a much easier read than Blessables. This uh, shorter work, like you said, Sean, is a short story. It goes by the title Light, but it's also published in a slightly different version called The Man Born Blind. And so last time that we talked with you, Charlie, we talked on the t subject of why myth is important, because this season we're talking about on myth and metaphor. 
And that idea of why myth matters is the subject of your book, The Fawn's Bookshelf. And so, of course, you're very helpful uh, for un- helping us understand that. And truthfully, I don't. I think if we didn't have that conversation with you, we wouldn't have had a clue about anything we read in Blessables. But it felt like yes. <laughs> you gave us a great primer that we uh, could at least pull out a few threads of something to talk about. Um, <laughs> but today we're going to be discussing our thoughts on a short story, um, this short story called Light. And uh, you also have a book on this short story, and your book is called Light, C.S. Lewis's First and Final Short Story. And in that book, you share more of your experiences as uh, what we're calling the Indiana Jones of Lewis studies, where uh, it, it kind of explains why you've become the world's uh, expert on Lewis handwriting. But you also share multiple interpretations of what this story, Light, could mean. And so we're going to focus on a couple of those today, uh, especially, but maybe before we get to the short story itself and talking about it, do you want to tell us more about your book on the short story and how it came to be that you wrote an entire book on just a short story? Well, um, the book is, first of all, um, a, a piece of literary detective work. Uh, wherein um, an unknown C.S. Lewis manuscript appeared out of nowhere in the mid-1980s, 20 years after Lewis uh, had died. Um, uh, The story had been accused of being a forgery. Um, Those who said it was not a forgery dated the story either to the 1920s before Lewis was a Christian or the 1950s long after his conversion. Uh, And then the story itself is so very strange. It has the strangest ending of any piece of Lewis fiction ever. Um, And it presented then a series of mysteries that needed to be solved. So the first third or so of the book is um, about my journey to solve the mysteries, to authenticate light, to talk about it in relationship to this other version of the story that exists. Um, to find a date for the manuscript, to try to figure out when Lewis wrote it, and then um, to consider what that might possibly mean. So the middle section then of the book is about um, possible meanings for the story, and there are many because it is such a mysterious story. Certainly, if Lewis wrote it before he was a Christian, it would have one meaning. If Lewis wrote it after he was a Christian, it could have a radically different meaning. Uh, So the middle chapters try to deal with what the various meanings of light might be, and uh, that very much took me into uh, questions about uh, epistemology, the nature of knowing, um, and um, uh, biographical information about Lewis, his relationship with Owen Barfield, um, and then how he used the concept of light throughout all of his writings. Uh, then the last third of the book is in one way the most academic. It is just me talking about the manuscripts, um, detailing every time Lewis crossed something out and wrote a different word in above it, um, but also then providing a, a parallel reading of the two versions of the story, plus uh, three attempts at revision uh, of the story, which I um, was able to find. Uh, putting all those together um, the way you might take a... Um, 
uh, one of those um, gospels where they, one of those books where they take all four gospels and they put them side by side. Um, so uh, it, it, I did something like that then with the light um, and man born blind manuscripts uh, to see what kind of meanings then by paralleling them, uh, see what kind of meanings might uh, come from them um, to put in lots of footnotes to really show that I did the scholarly side of the work uh, as well. Um, so the, the first third of the book is very much um, for those who like a good detective story. The final third is um, sort of scholarly nerddom, um, but if you really love uh, manuscripts, then then that's the sort of thing that uh, you could really enjoy. Uh, the middle then is for those who want to think more deeply about Lewis's philosophy and theology, and that's the light book. Wow. Well, on, on that note then, um, you, the listeners will understand why you're the one who we asked to come and help guide us through the, the short story. So before we get into any of those... Um, any of the details of what Lewis was thinking and what he may have been saying or any of the interpretations that you've discovered in your work that are out there, um, would you take us through the gist of this short story? What does it say? So the, uh, at the beginning of the book, um, a, uh, the main character, a man named Robin, um, was born blind and spent his entire life blind. Um, but then he received an operation that could give him his sight. Um, but the book op or the short story opens in with a conversation with his wife. And she is um, just talking about general things and then talks to him about going for a walk. And then he says, well, there, there'll be a lot of light out there, won't there? Um, she says, yes, I suppose there will. And then as their conversation goes, it's clear that they're having some sort of a miscommunication because Robin wants to see light and no one can point it out to him. As the story progresses, we learned that the reason he wanted to get his sight at all was so that he could see light. Um, even the person listening to me talk about this might be going, uh, Charlie, I don't quite follow what you're saying. Well, you know, if you look around your room, there is light everywhere, but can you pinpoint it? You could look at a lamp and say, um, well, there's light coming from the lamp, but Robin's response is, yeah, but is that light? Um, is, is the lamp, is that light? And, um, and so people can't quite um, understand what he's saying. He's looking for some real thing, um, a, um, a, a hard noun, right? A concrete noun. Uh, this thing called light. And what he realizes is that he's not going to find it if he asks people because they don't know where it is. Well, how does he know about light at all? Well, he read about light in books of in books written in Braille. He read Milton's beautiful description of light. Um, he read Ruskin and others on light. And uh, so he wants to find the thing itself. So he goes out, and again, this is only a four-page story. He goes out looking for light um, one morning, and he's um, walking along um, uh, in the hills near a quarry. And he sees a man, and the man is um, doing something he's never seen before. Turns out the guy's a painter. He's got his easel. He's got his um, uh, canvas, and he's, um, he's painting something. Well, the sun was just coming up, um, and there was a fog in the quarry. And the quarry was, uh, the fog in the quarry was being lit up by the sun. 
And uh, Robin asks the man, what are you doing? The man says, well, if you, ha if you must know, I'm trying to capture light. Um, and Robin says, oh, oh, oh my, so am I. And the man says, well, there it is, real drinkable light. And Robin is so excited about what he thinks is solid or at least liquid light um, in the quarry that he jumps off the quarry's edge, dives into the fog, and dies. End of story. <laughs> yeah. And now we got to figure out what to do with that. Yeah. Yeah, I remember the first time I read it, I, I immediately reread it because I thought, I must not have been paying attention. I must have missed something. <laughs> but then I realized, yes. no, I didn't miss anything. This, yeah, it, it's just very interesting. It has this abrupt ending um, that makes you then start questioning, what is this about? Where? Why did it end up here? Yeah, if if I ever um, do a second edition of the book, I'm going to change the subtitle, I think, to C.S. Lewis's Most Mysterious Manuscript, um, because the manuscript itself certainly is, and then the story is just, there is no other story like it in um, in Lewis's work. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting just hearing both of you, and even, even the way that you recount it, Charlie, you, you tell it well with that abrupt ending. The, even the cadence of, of the way that the story carries itself on, it really almost feels unfinished. So I, and, and Jordan, funny that you say that you went back and reread it. I exactly the same. I thought it was, I distracted when I was reading this <laughs> and, and then my mind immediately, and this is how, you know, it's a good story actually, is that my mind immediately started to try to work out what I had just observed in the story where I thought, is he really dead though? Or did he Did he have some sort of mystical, you know, experience where he did? No, he just fell into this quarry and is gone. And, um, and so it is, it is a strange work. It is a strange work. Something I thought about while I was considering our, our talk tonight, um, something that came to me for the first time. And I, I, you know, I wish it had come to me when I was writing the book is just how much of all Lewis's stories, this is like a story by Edgar Allan Poe. Um, you know, Poe created the theory of the short story. Uh, and he said um, the entire story should build to a, a great climax and then end just about immediately. There should be almost no denouement whatsoever. You build, 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 bam, and you have this singular effect on your audience. And of all Lewis's um, short pieces, this one, this one is the one that that echoes that, would we say, Poean approach um, to writing short stories. Yeah, so it has, uh, as you write in the book, a number of different ways that we could interpret it. And I think part of the fun of it was is reading the story and trying to think, what does this mean? And at different parts, you think, oh, maybe he's going this way, or maybe he's trying to emphasize this. But there's so many meanings you can juggle as you're going through that you're not sure which one he ultimately means and uh, not to give away your book, but you kind of land on, I think we should keep them all open because they're all um, the story represents them all fairly well, whether we know if he intended one or, or more or not. Um, so tonight, or, or I guess listener, whenever you're listening to this, but we're recording in the evening. Um, we're going to get into mainly two of these interpretations, uh, one as it regards epistemology and one as it regards Zainzucht, which are both words that uh, 
listener you may not be familiar with. You, if you're not familiar with them, you have uh, no reason to feel silly because those are <laughs> one's a German word and one's a very philosophical word. Uh, we'll explain them as we get there. But before we get too um, deep into the the meaning as it applies to epistemology, first you also write, and I think it's connected if I've understood you right, but how this story probably started out as being about this great war that Lewis had with his friend Owen Barfield. Would you want to explain how um, how this story started and, and what its initial interpretation may have been? Yeah. So um, uh, Barfield and Lewis were good friends at college uh, post-World War One. Um, they had all the very same interests. They read all the same books, but they had widely different views on um, what all of it meant. And um, so as they would argue about a variety of topics, um, Lewis, said, Lewis says they would go at it hammer and tongs. Um, so you think of um, blacks, uh, a blacksmith image, right? And um, they would then... Um, you know, sort of change each other's views or improve each other's views. Barfield probably had the bigger effect on Lewis than the other way around, but both both were affected by by each other's um, thoughts. Um, Barfield was able to cure Lewis of pure atheism by pointing out to Lewis that reason doesn't make sense if the human brain is a process of random non-rational um, evolutionary processes. So something non-rational, no matter how much it builds um, complexity into an organ, cannot then create rationality. Uh, so Lewis had to admit that there, that reason, capital R, uh, was larger than just physical processes. Um, Lewis says Barfield also cured him of his chronological snobbery, uh, which is to say that um, Barfield showed Lewis that you can't reject something just because it's in the past. Uh, but that is that was very common thinking in the uh, 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, we know better than they did then. Uh, we understand better than they did. And so old ideas are bad ideas. So um, that's one thing. When it, it then came to the questions of epistemology, um, Lewis and Barfield were getting to the point where they agreed that there was some larger power, some perhaps pantheistic power, um, some great capital S spirit that made thought legitimate. Barfield believed that that spirit could be accessed by looking inward. And um, through inward contemplation of my own thought processes, I could find my way to access that spirit. Lewis said, no, that's impossible. Um, now, Lewis would change his thinking after he became a Christian, but uh, at the time of the Great War, in relation to the light story, Lewis said, no, that's impossible. Um, because as soon as you start looking inward, 
you're no longer um, thinking, you're thinking about thinking. And what you see when you look inward will never be your actual thought processes. It'll always, they'll always be a step removed. So Lewis um, picked up an idea that um, um, a fellow called enjoyment and contemplation. Uh, every act of knowing, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the book, and I apologize for that. Um, as I was explaining to the fellows, I think before we started recording, um, I forgot most of what I wrote, so I had to go back and read the whole book. Alexander. Okay, yeah. the book was called um, Space, Time, and Deity by a guy named Alexander. So yeah, it, it comes back to me. Um, any experience we have will include an enjoyment and a contemplation. The enjoyment is the experiential side of the thing. The contemplation is um, the thinking about the thing. It's a little more complex than that. And Lewis would sometimes talk about them separately. Um, he thought about them as always occurring together, but at the same time, he looked at them often separately. And, and I think there's one instance where he does talk about them as separate activities. Um, but the easiest explanation is to consider his essay, um, Meditation in a Tool Shed, where he talks about looking at a beam of light. So light is very significant there in his epistemology looking at a beam of light versus stepping into the beam and looking along the beam. If we look along the beam, we're now experiencing the thing. If we look at the beam, um, we're trying to stand outside um, uh, and, and, and understand it. And uh, for Lewis, there are advantages and disadvantages to both. Um, if I am in the midst of pain, I can't write another chapter for my book about pain. Right, he says, if only my tooth would stop hurting, I could write another chapter about pain. But when do we know pain except when we're in it? Um, when we're in love, we're too busy being in love to consider what love is. Um, we cannot contemplate repentance when we're overwhelmed with guilt asking God for forgiveness. So in the one instance, um, I'm looking along the beam. In the other, I'm looking at the beam. Uh, well, well. So for Lewis, if, if you try to look inside yourself, you're not really um, looking experientially. You're, 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 you've abstracted your own thought processes. You're, you're not thinking your thoughts anymore. You're looking at the thoughts that you thought. And Lewis said something like that could ultimately drive you insane. So according to Owen Barfield, sometime before Lewis became a Christian in the late, uh, this would be in the late 20s, Lewis wrote a short story about a man born blind. Um, and the man dies because he wants to see light. And what he fails to realize is light is not the thing that you see. Light is the thing that allows you to see everything else. If you go looking for the thing that you want to see, uh, that allows you to see everything else, if you go looking for the thing that allows you to look, you're never going to find it. And you might end up dropping off a cliff into a into yeah. a fog bank. So so it was a warning to Barfield. Um, although um, early on, um, Michael Ward uh, argued um, that it might actually be Lewis agreeing with Barfield. So his is an interesting interpretation, and I do cover that in the light book. Um, but there are reasons then to consider the possibility that either Barfield was wrong in his memory, or 
um, Lewis came back to the story to the story and changed it and added new meanings to it. But meaning number one is probably that um, it's a parable um, explaining that Barfield's thought process is about trying to look inward to, to, to connect back to spirit are um, wrong. Uh, so that's the first interpretation of the, of, the, of the light short story. Yeah, and and as you as you discuss all that out, and, and you know, I listen listen with ears that may be a little bit less familiar with uh, some of some of this thought process. But again, thinking about thinking is not the same as thinking. Looking along a beam of light is not the same as looking at a beam of light. And seeing my office as I sit in it right now is is not the same as seeing light itself. I'm seeing my office by seeing light. That is not the end of our discussion with Charlie. He will be back on the next couple episodes where we'll discuss with him other possible meanings of this short story. One of which being the idea of epistemology or how we come to know, see, and understand reality. And another possible interpretation is Zengzipt, which will be our theme for Advent this year. By way of announcement, I wanted to let you know that in two weeks, on November 29th will be the first ever C.S. Lewis Reading Day. Many podcasters and other Lewis aficionados will be participating in it, posting tons of Lewis quotes on their social media and other platforms. On November 29th, there'll be a live episode with a bunch of different podcasters doing a panel. And all these podcasts, including ourselves, will be doing a special bonus episode that day, trying to encourage people to go read C.S. Lewis. If you want to join along on November 29th, post a quote from Lewis or a picture of yourself reading maybe your favorite Lewis work. Use the hashtag C.S. Lewis Reading Day. And if you want, you could use hashtag Lesser Known Lewis also, because we would love to get tagged in it to see what it is you're reading. And if you do tag us in your post, we'll reach out to you. We'll try and send you some special Lesser Known Lewis swag. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Charlie. There's lots more on this story with Charlie to come next week and in future weeks. I really enjoyed this episode. I hope you did as well. And just wanted to say thanks to all our patrons, including our top tier patron, David. And if you enjoyed this episode, good news. There's a lot more with Charlie talking about Lewis's short story, Light, to come in the near future. <laughs>